Every week you walk in. Many of you walk down that hall. How many of you have noticed the very large wooden letters that are on that wall as you walk down the hall to deposit your children and pick them back up? You do pick them back up, right? You don't just leave them there with it. How many of you have noticed that large? All right, six of you. What are you looking at when you walk down the hall? Every week you walk in here and you receive a bulletin. Mine's got post-it notes all over to remind me what to share. But every week underneath this, you have a statement that's there, right? It's the same statement that you see on that wall. Our desire at Community Alliance Church is to see people being transformed by faith in Christ, growing in wisdom and intentional in relationships and service. Now, that's a great statement, incredibly powerful statement. But sometimes we wonder, what does it look like? Well, I'm glad you asked because Paul gives us some incredible glimpses into that transformed by faith in Christ in Colossians chapter 3. And for the next number of weeks, we're going to be in one of the greatest sections of Scripture that Paul has ever written. I love every writing he's written. And I love how he communicates the gospel. I love how God's inspired him and used him to be able to communicate to us what it means to live out the life that God has called us to. But in this section of Scripture, he's going to talk to us about what it means to be transformed by faith in Christ. It's a great statement, but what does it look like? How do I go from that caterpillar to the butterfly? What does that metamorphosis process look like? How does it take place? And when it's all said and done, what will I look like? And how different will I be from what I was before Jesus to what I am right now? And that's what Paul is going to describe to us over the next couple of weeks. Last week, we explored the end of chapter 2 where Paul seemed to indicate that there were a lot of people making a determination about who's in and who's out in the family of God based on externals, based on other things, uh, evaluating them on a man-made list of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. I grew up in that culture. Maybe none of you did. But I grew up in that culture where it seemed as if there was some man-made list of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And if I followed the list, I must be in. And if I didn't adhere to the list, I probably really hadn't committed my life to Christ at some point or the other. may have known about God, maybe knew there was a God that existed, but if I didn't follow the list and didn't adhere to the list, I probably wasn't in. And they made the list at times sound very spiritual. Believe it or not, I heard a saying like this in the last 30, 40 years of my life. If you really want to sound spiritual, if you really want to be a follower of Christ, if you really love the church of Jesus, then you're going to go to church on Sunday morning. And your attendance on Sunday morning was one of the indicators of that. Now, I think you ought to be here. These guys that say, well, I can follow God, I can, I, I can worship God in the golf course, and I can, well, you're probably not worshiping God in the golf course when you miss, I'm telling you that. I can worship God in the woods. Most of the guys who say that don't. I get it, you certainly can, but, and I'm one that loves what we do on Sunday morning, but they were measuring spirituality by that. If you love the church, you'll go on Sunday morning. If you love people of the church, you'll come on Sunday night, but if you love God, you'll come to Wednesday night prayer meeting. And that's what I was told. And your spirituality was measured by those things. If you love the church, you'll come on Sunday morning. If you love people of the church, you'll come on Sunday night. And if you love God, you'll come on Wednesday night. And it was all measuring externals. It was measuring by things. It became obligatory rather than a passionate desire to fall in love with Jesus. I saw a lot of people who looked religious and 
really practice religious duties, but never seem to be filled with love and joy and the filling of the Holy Spirit. They never seem to display joy and never seem to display grace. It was all an effort to make people think they were religious, but no real passion for the living Christ. When I was a kid, I think all of you, when you were a kid, you loved to pretend, right? You loved to be somebody that you weren't. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a cowboy. My name was changed to Roy Rogers. And I had a horse named what? Traeger. 20 years ago, when I had the opportunity to get a horse, what kind of horse do you think I got, Karen? A Palomino. That was my horse. And our neighbor that babysit our kids loved that horse. Years ago, I was at a function at Nyack College. And I literally was dressed like this, one of the reasons I wore this outfit today. And this girl called me over and she said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, honey. She said, do you golf? I said, honey, you have any idea how funny that question is about me? You have no idea who I am. I said, why on earth would you think that I golf? She said, you look like that guy on TV who goes for the golf station. I'm going... Seriously, he's much better looking than me. <laughs> Going to Dick's Sporting Goods over by Clearview Mall. And I walk in and a guy said, the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> that guy there. I'm in Atlanta airport three weeks ago. And this guy walks up to me and he said, the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> I'm going, seriously, two things. I don't golf, and I'm definitely not the most interesting man in the world. It's okay to pretend when you're a kid. But it's not okay to pretend that you're a follower of Christ when you're not. And it's not okay to pretend that you're spiritual by what you do on the outside or a list of religious duties when there's nothing inside that has ever changed. It's like someone walking around who looks fine on the outside... It's got that silent, deadly disease building up on the inside with a lot of junk that's there that's never dealt with, never analyzed, that will eventually destroy the outside. Chapter 3, Colossians, Paul begins to describe and talk about this transformation and what it really looks like to change from the inside out, not the outside in, but from the inside out, and what that looks like when we become followers of Christ. In this last chapter and a half, Paul's going to describe to us what transformation really looks like. When I'm transformed by Christ, it begins to change my mind. It begins to be change my behavior. It takes place, place or care of my attitude. It works in my home. It works at work. It works in relationships. Transformation changes our mind, our behavior, our attitude, our homes, our workplace, and our relationships. And that's going to take us near the end of the book of Colossians. This week, 1 to 11. Next week, 2 to 17. Paul's going to talk about this week, what to get rid of, and next week, what to put on. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. If you don't have a Bible, I think it's going to come on the screen. But again, I'd love for you to be in the Word. Today, we're really going to expound and begin to pull apart this particular section of Scripture this week and next. So if you have a Bible and want to bring it, there's a lot of things I want you to underline and look at very carefully in the Word of God. Since you've been raised by Christ or with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, in light of all of that, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he gives us a list of some of those things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, you used to walk in those ways. That was the life that you once lived, he says. But now, you've got to rid yourself of all such things as these. He goes on with another list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to one another. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here, there's no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians, Scathians, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, look at how he starts. He starts this whole discussion on transformation with an assumption. What is that assumption? You see it there? Since you've been raised by Christ. He starts very clearly with an assumption. This transformation process, that's one of the reasons if you notice the transformation taking place on those phrases, we added the words in Christ a number of months ago because we wanted to be clear who it is that we're adhering to and who it is that's transforming us. He starts with an assumption. Transformation takes place only as you commit your life to Christ. Since you've been raised by Christ, It starts with a relationship with Jesus. When I begin a relationship with Christ, Paul said, the life that I now live, I live for Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live in Galatians 2.20, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Two major steps that we believe before any other things you do in your relationship with humanity, two things that you really need to make sure are really clearly done in your life. One is to embrace Christ as your Savior. And the second step you ought to take after that is to be baptized. We believe in immersion, fully under. There's a significance in that process. When we bring people into a tank, we have one, if you've never been to one of the services before, it sits here, it's round, it looks like a hot tub with, with uh, soft walls on it. It's not a hot tub. Warm when you go in it. But we believe that one of the things that you ought to do after you acknowledge your relationship with Christ is to be baptized. That whole baptism process is a symbol of something that takes place. When two couples, or two couples, two people stand before me to get married, they've already made a decision to spend the rest of their life together, but they're symbolizing that in a marriage ceremony. They're standing before their family and friends, before Almighty God, and before a pastor to publicly declare their allegiance to one another. They say the words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and in health till death do us part. Most 19-year-olds have no idea what they commit to when they say that. But that's what they're saying. And they're publicly declaring their allegiance to one another. When we go through the baptism service, you are publicly declaring that you are a follower of Christ. And in that process, when we take them and put them under the water and bring them back out, it symbolizes what Paul's describing in here in this section of Scripture. That I died to me. 
the old me, the old Denny, the old John, the old Mary, what I used to be before Jesus no longer exists. I died to all of that. And when you come up out of the water, I'm a new creature in Christ. All my past is gone. I'm a new follower of Jesus. And then the transformation process continues. But it's a symbol of what takes place in that journey. Now, I don't say all that while you're under the water. Just in case you want to get baptized, which I hope you do. I don't want to scare you. I don't say all that while you're under the water. I've thought about it at times, but I haven't done it. And we come up out of the water, it symbolizes I'm no longer me. I'm no longer what I used to be. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's a great reminder of this public declaration that I'm a follower of Jesus. A lot of people who have invited Christ into their life did it privately. Did it in a service or at the end of a service. A lot of these guys last night, they just signed their name on a card. Now, we're going to follow up well, but it was, a, it was a private moment. Maybe you did it at home or at the end of a crusade of sometimes, and maybe somebody saw you go forward, but just that private moment between you and God. Somebody else may have helped you through the process. Baptism is the public declaration of what I did in those private moments. And that I'm telling the world, I'm a follower of Christ. When you're living the life that Paul is calling us to, you're saying to everyone, look, it's not about me, it is about Christ, but I want you to know what he's called me to, I want to live out. And I want you to know I'm not what I used to be, but this is what I am now. And then he goes on to describe what we used to be and what we set aside. Look what he said in verse 2. Set your mind on things above. It's a reorientation of my thinking. Verse that I alluded to last week in Romans 12, I, I beg you, I plead with you in view of all that God has done, that you offer yourselves as living sacrifice. You no longer conform to the pattern of the world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. It means that you don't buy into what the world says is okay. Whatever the world says is okay, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks in regards to marriage. You don't buy into what the world says is okay. I now submit to Jesus. And I know that in that process, I'm submitting to a new way of thinking. I'm submitting to a new way of looking at life. I'm submitting to a new way of making decisions. It's no longer about what pleases me. What would please you, God? And this decision that I'm about to make, not about the clothes you wear or the small things of life, but in these decisions of life, what would please you in this career, in this job? In what I pursue, in my hobby, what would please you, God, in all of this? It's a new way of thinking, and I, I no longer just do it for myself. Wake up in the morning, whatever I want to do, I do. Now I wake up in the morning and say, God, this is a gift. This day is a gift. You've given me the next whatever hours, and, and I want to live it well. What do you, what, is there anything you want to teach me, anything you want to show me? I want to make sure that I live it well and I don't waste it. You never get it back. I've got a lot of decisions to make about job or careers or family or decisions we make about our priorities in our family. God, what, what would you want me to do? It's a whole new way of looking at life. It's a whole new way of thinking. It's a whole new way of making decisions. It's not a matter of looking at a bracelet and say, okay, what would Jesus do? You're not Jesus. So it's not a matter of just looking at a bracelet and saying, what would Jesus do in this case? It would be saying, God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that you said is available to me. And so I don't have to figure out this life on my own. I don't have to figure out how to make these decisions on my own. You came and lived in me when I turned my life over to you, and you sent me the power of your spirit, the same one that raised Jesus from the dead. That's a pretty big power. 
It's the same one you provide for me to help me make these decisions. So, Lord, what do you want me to do? It is submitting my life and my thinking to the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say, everything changes now. You don't act like you used to before Christ. You don't think like you used to. You don't behave like you used to before Christ. You submitted your life to Christ. So, look at verse 5. Put to death your old way of life. Put to death your old way of life. Two things about that phrase, put to death. Who's he telling to put it to death? Who's he telling to do that? Us. You. Quit it. He places personal responsibility on us. There's a lot of people that don't seem to get that. When they wait for God to make all the changes and, and, and they just continue to do what they did, well, I, I committed my life to Christ. He's got to change me. <laughs> Puts a lot of personal responsibility on You put it to death. Quit doing that. Don't do that anymore. Don't go there anymore. Don't watch that anymore. Don't listen to that anymore. Don't buy into that way of thinking. Put that to death. You. And he places a certain amount of personal responsibility on us. He expects us to take the responsibility of putting it to death. He's provided all the resources, every resource under the sun. He's provided, but he said, take responsibility for where you are. And then look at what he says about that, that phrase. Put it to death. It's not keeping sin at bay. It's not keeping it in check. He says, kill it. Kill it. Put to death. What? Put to death what? Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Whatever you know you did before that wasn't pleasing to God, quit it. Put it to death. Give you the power to do that. You don't have to do it on your own, but you need to decide whether or not you want to do that. And that, again, is the submission process that goes with it. And then he gives us a a list of some of those things just in case where we're sitting there saying, okay, Lord, I I get it. I, I probably need to do that. I don't want to do that anymore. So what is it that you want me to put to death? Well, thank you for asking. Let me give you a list of some of those things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. It came to be at the top of the list. Sexual desire is hardwired into the human psyche, and it's not evil in and of itself, but the perversions of it are. And when he uses the term immorality, sexual immorality, he's referring to fornication, which is what the Bible calls sex before marriage. Don't do that. He's talking about homosexuality. He's talking about pornography. He's talking about adultery. When he uses the word immorality, he's not just simply saying to you, you shouldn't watch that. Don't look at that commercial. He's saying, you've got to get rid of all this stuff. Sex before marriage, pornography, homosexuality. You've got to get rid of all of that stuff. The issue is addressed. That issue is addressed. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Galatians. What do you think that means? I think God's trying to make a statement <laughs> on these issues. You've got to quit that stuff. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to put it to death. Sex is one of the most amazing gifts God ever gave a man or a woman within the confines of marriage. If there weren't any kids in the room, I would describe to you fully what it is that God did in that wonderful magical moment when he came to eat or came to Adam and said, I'm telling you what, I have got a gift for you that's going to blow your mind. 
this, all to be contained within the confines of marriage. But it is an incredible gift. And that one gift given to us in the Garden of Eden between a man and a woman has been perverted ever since in all kinds of ways. The issue of pornography, the, 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 the revenue from pornography alone is greater than the revenue of NFL, NBA, Hockey League, and all the other sports, large sports programs combined. Spent $51 billion on the Olympics. I love the Winter Olympics. The revenue in pornography is way, way more than any of these other sports combined. It has been perverted ever since. And God, or the world uses sex to sell everything, absolutely everything. The list is capped off by greed, which he said is idolatry. It refers to that arrogant belief that everything, including other people, exists for our own personal pleasure. Essentially, it turns our desires into idols. That overwhelming desire to possess more and more, that craves for more and more, never satisfied, but always wants more. In Jewish literature, when Paul is writing, all the sins of the pagan world were epitomized by references to their sexual immorality and their idolatry. The two were interconnected. Idolatry had its chief purpose to get uh, something and, and some material advantage from the small g gods. And they do everything they possibly could to manipulate the gods to that end, to their end. I, it could be as simple as I want good crops, to I want more family, whatever that may be. But they're trying to manipulate the God to do things for them. It's what I want, doesn't matter what God wants. The lust for worldly possessions quickly pushes God out of the center of our lives and captivates our total allegiance. Jesus said, you can't do that. You can't serve things and God. One will always push the other out. Now, he uses the word mammon in the New Testament, the King James Version, which many refer to as money. It's more than that. It's possessions. It's things. And Jesus said, look, I just need you to know it's, an, it, it's like the law of gravity. What goes up is going to come down. You throw something in the air, it's going to come down. And I just want you to know, it's not that I'm telling you shouldn't. I'm just saying you can't. I, I can say, I want to jump off this thing and I won't fall to the ground. I want to fall backwards and I won't fall to the ground. And see, you can't do that. It, you're going to fall. Gravity does that. And Jesus said, I just need you to know, you can't do both. You've got to choose. Because what we want then will become more important than what God wants. Paul concludes this list of vices by clearly reminding us that our behavior will incur God's wrath uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians. I just need you to know that God will judge what you have done. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is another great reference to that section of Scripture. Those that Paul is writing to lived in a society where that kind of lifestyle, all the evil, all idolatry, drunkardness, behavior, and all the things that go with that was the lifestyle, the norm of their society. People tended to live that way adopted their standards, values, and way of thinking. The uncompromising morality of Judaism and specifically Christianity is what attracted the new people that coming into the faith more than anything else because they wanted to go away from the moral corruption of their society. Christianity demands that Christ's followers live the same. You used to do that. Don't do that anymore. He's telling the Colossians to live out ethically what they have become in Christ. 
Believers that have set their hearts to think like followers of Jesus should. Put to death the things that we used to do in the past. Rid of our past. Rid ourselves of the past wicked practices. And clothe ourselves, as you'll see next Sunday morning, with a new nature. Now the danger in the section of Scripture like this is to do what I talked about last Sunday morning. To take this list that Paul uses as a list of requirements to be a follower of Christ. Too often we deal with issues of sexual sins, for example, and get lost in external issues. We talk about the lengths of skirt and use of makeup and all the things that go with that. Rules and policies may be necessary to rein in excesses, but they will never, never be a part of what we need to do in regards to following Christ. More rules and regulations never make people more moral. The lustful look begins in the mind's eye. The real solution for a man's lust is not to avoid women or cover them up, but to transform completely the way a man looks at a woman, to see her as a person for whom Christ died, not an object of our own physical gratification. You understand that? An old farmer once said, what comes up in the bucket is usually what's down in the well. What comes up in the bucket is usually what's down in the well. Sexual immorality, bursts of anger, foul talk that Paul talks about are all indications of inner junk not dealt with. No list of prohibitions ever going to change that stuff inside. They may suppress it for a while, but the only solution to really change what's down in the well of our souls is giving our lives completely to Christ and allowing the transforming power of the Spirit to fumigate our thoughts and our actions and our lives before that. Only that will solve what we used to be to what we need to be in Christ. Being raised with Christ is being renewed by Him, living a life pleasing to Him. As a result of that, we really begin to take on a form of the new nature of Jesus. A new life is not something that happens automatic. Paul clearly declares in, in Philippians chapter 3, look, I just need you to know I'm not perfect in this. One of the reasons I wanted to be down here today and not up there is I never want to appear that I've got it mastered and I'm over you speaking down to you. Paul said, look, I need you to know I'm not perfect in this. I haven't mastered it yet. But I'm telling you, I'm going forward. I'm not going backwards. And I'm moving forward to the prize that God has already bought and paid for by his son's blood. And I keep moving in that direction. I'm not going backwards. In Romans 7, he said, look, it's a real struggle. There's things that I want to do that I don't do and things that I don't want to do that I end up doing. And I find myself every once in a while in this vicious cycle. But then he ends with a really, really powerful phrase. And that is, who can save me from this wretched transition that constantly I'm battling with? And then he says, Jesus can. Jesus can do that. You don't have to do that on your own. You don't have to keep going backwards. You can move forwards. But it begins with a decision to fully submit myself to Christ to yield myself to him and allow his power to so saturate every fiber of my being inside and out that the out becomes a reflection of what Jesus is doing on the inside. He finishes, and I'll finish here today. He finishes with reminding us that this new life in Christ not only changes, you've got to see this in the end verses there, not only changes how we think and how we act, it changes how we look at people. It not only changes how I think and how I act, it changes how we look at people. It changes how we look at people who are different than us. Here he specifically points to their religious differences, cultural differences, economic differences, and ethnic differences. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down man-made walls. It doesn't classify people by race, by nationality, by class, or calculate their worth and their value based on those things. That is a hugely powerful phrase. The gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down man-made walls. It doesn't classify people by race, nationality, class, or calculate their value and worth based on those things. There is no place for prejudice in a transformed follower of Christ. There is no place for prejudice in the transformed follower of Christ. When you fly overseas, you have one of those seats that have a bunch of movies and TV shows, which is kind of cool if you're ADD like me and can't sleep on a plane anyhow. So I watched the movie 42. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I don't watch many movies. I don't go to them at all. But uh, it's the story of Jackie Robinson, the first black baseball player in National Baseball League. And I watched that movie again, and I, I, I grew up near the end of the 60s, but the 50s and the 60s were an incredible time in the South. I mean, can you imagine any, you would walk into a, a restaurant or walk into a, a gas station and see a sign that said for colored folks and for white folks. I mean, we, we can't fathom that. But that's what it's like. And if we're not careful, we don't put up signs that physically says for colored folks and for white folks. But man, we can do it in here and we can do it in the way we look at people. And Paul said, look, I need you to know it changes everything. When you submit your life to Christ and you allow him to transform your thinking and your way of life and the way you respond, the way you act, it changes everything about you, even to the way you look at people. In all this passage, he constantly points us back to Jesus. Constantly points us back to Jesus. In verse 3, our life now as a believer in Christ is hidden in Christ. Not me anymore. I no longer live. I submit myself to him. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm crucified with him. And the life that I now live, I live in Christ. Brad's going to come and close with a band and a whole team is going to come and sing a song that you've got to hear clearly the words to and the message that it presents because all of this constantly continually points us back to Jesus.